We're in the Gospel of John, we are going to, uh, well, we're almost going to finish today uh, the final discourse in the Gospel of John. If you look in your, uh, in your worship guides, it says we're going to be covering verse 25 through verse 33. Uh, and as I got into it this week, pulling that out, I realized we were going to either have an hour and a half long sermon which I think no no one would appreciate, or I should break that in half because there was just too much. There was just too much beauty in in the first half for me to. Uh, I just didn't want to just kind of blow over it, right? So, so uh, next week we will cover twenty nine through thirty three. So this week will be part one, experiential part one, knowing the knowledge of God through meditation and prayer and His love for us. Uh, So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is John chapter 16, verses 25 through 28. This is God's inerrant word. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the compactness, the beauty of the depth of your word, uh, the promises, that, the rich promises that you have given to us, Lord. And today is like picking up diamonds on a beach, Lord, for us free for the taking. We pray that you would help us to see the beauty of your character uh, and how you have clearly revealed yourself to us and what it means for us. In Jesus, Lord, please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Dateline, May 17th, 2017. Headline from the Babylon Bee. Your trusted news source for Christian satire. Man sitting literally three feet away from Bible asks God to speak to him. Boston, Massachusetts. According to sources, local man Steve Harrison fervently prayed Thursday that the Lord would speak to him and make his will for the man's life clear, all the while sitting literally three feet away from God's word as revealed in the Bible. Father God, if you, would just, if you would just speak to me, Father God, Harrison prayed as God's prophetic word made more sure, sat just on the other end of the table which he was seated. If you would just show me your plan for my life and just reveal your truth to me, Father, he continued, somehow missing the fact that God's truth had already been perfectly revealed to him in the scriptures. I just really need you to speak to me personally, Lord. 
At publishing time, sources had confirmed that a frustrated Harrison eventually gave up on trying to hear God's word and resigned himself to just reading the Bible instead. <laughs> so why is this so funny? Why do we all laugh at that? I mean, the, the satire is brilliant, but it, it just pulls out of us and we recognize in ourselves our own tendency, our own tendency to take for granted the the extraordinary providence, the beautiful providence that God has given to us in his completed word. And we live in a culture that is saturated with Bible. I think there's a, you know, the Bible is the number one selling book and has been for centuries. There's some statistic that there's three or four Bibles per American household. I know we have several Bibles in our house. And so this There's this tyranny of the familiar. It's always there. It's always present. It's become so familiar. There's almost, uh, uh, you know, familiarity breeds contempt is what they say. And so we 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 have so much of it that we just absolutely take it for granted. And we've lost, in a big way, the sense, a feeling sense of what it really is, which is God's self-revelation to man which is not found anywhere else. And the astonishing privilege it is to have access to that in its completed form. Uh, you know, there's other, there's other reasons besides just this, besides just familiarity breeds contempt that we shun or we don't take advantage of the Bible the way we should. There's, we have... Um, we live in an immediate culture. We, uh, we, we want to uh, have everything right now. And so Bible reading and meditative Bible reading, it takes a certain level of commitment and discipline and dedication that we have lost in a large way culturally. Uh, we are also uh, very much still in a romantic culture. Romantic culture meaning uh, that we believe or we've been taught or the cultural air we breathe is that real truth is, uh, is perceived from the inside, and the purer your heart, the more true that truth is. And so we, we kind of rebel against the idea of receiving any kind of truth from an external source. And you add our aversion to authority on top of that, and it kind of it exasperates that whole problem. But the reality is that the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, is what Jesus says here when he talks about speaking to us plainly about the Father. And the best way for us to experience truth and to experience God and to know God is to meditate on these words that have come to us from heaven. And that's the big idea that Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and also to us today, so that the thesis, the big idea, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else today is this, that since God continues to reveal himself to us through Jesus in the Bible, we can have an intimate communion with him in prayer as we rest in his unshakable covenant love. Let me read that one more time. Since God continues to reveal himself to us through, the Bible, through Jesus in the Bible, we can have intimate communion with him in prayer as we rest in his unshakable covenant love. And we'll take that one 
little part at a time. Number one, God continues to reveal himself to us through Jesus in the Bible. In verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. As we've been reading John's gospel and going through it from the very beginning, the whole Bible, the whole gospel itself is full of Jesus using these figures of speech to describe things, these semi-cryptic words, these semi-cryptic or uh, or parabolic parables to describe different things. It starts out in the beginning where he's presents himself as the new temple. He says, man must be born again. That completely confuses Nicodemus as to what that might mean. He talks about living water, about the bread of life, about the light of the world. He talks about himself being like the gate for the sheep. He says he's the good shepherd. He talks about himself being the vine. All of these parables, all of these figures of speech that he's using to describe really God's action in the world and the character of God that comes out of that. Uh, and all in the Gospels, all the other Gospels, the same thing. There's these long sections where Jesus is teaching in parables and then often at the end he ends it by saying, let he who has an ear hear. Leaving one to wonder if we have ears or not, right? Because some of them are very hard to understand what he's talking about. In the Gospels alone. And so, the, you know, the purpose, the purpose of those parables are really twofold. It talks in, in Mark 4 and Matthew 12, talks about how Jesus always spoke in parables uh, so that uh, those who would, the people who, who would hear and not understand, quoting Isaiah 6, talking about the, the twofold purpose of those who had ears to hear, those who had the eyes of faith. God would reveal himself to him in these parables, but those who did not would not understand what he was saying. There was this kind of duality in the reasoning of it that left for the purpose of all those parables. And so the the question here, really the first question that comes to mind is when Jesus says this, okay, the time for figures of speech is over, basically. He's saying the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The, the big question is when. When does that happen? When is he going to do that for us? The apostles, as we read next week, they get it wrong. They think he's, they're so full of bravado that they just assume that he's starting to talk about it now. But the reality is, as we've been learning, is that on the day of Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost when Christ is with us in the spirit and with he became with the apostles to teach them plainly about God through the indwelling spirit which then created the new testament and so when this happened really started post resurrection right after the resurrection it continued at pentecost and then continued throughout the formation of the canon and then continues for us today as we have the new testament to read think about it the first thing that jesus did after the resurrection was the road to Emmaus when he started connecting the dots with the, with the, with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Not, not only saying that he was speaking in parables in the New Testament, but also revealing to them that really, in a, in a big way, the Old Testament itself was parabolic. The Old Testament itself contained shadows that, that, that led us to, or shadows of Jesus 
the substance of which now come in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians. Paul uses that language, talking about the feasts of Israel, uh, the old Sabbaths of Israel, all of those things he said were shadows leading to the substance that, was, that, is, that is Christ, which is really a beautiful imagery if you think about it. What is a shadow? A shadow is a dark image or an outline of something, and the substance of that shadow is the person, the real person that the sun is shining on and creating that shadow. And so Paul is saying the New Testament is talking about, when it talks about shadows and substance, it's giving this really amazing and beautiful imagery of, of, of Jesus being the substance and the light of the sun casting his shadow backwards into the Old Testament, really, from the reality of the incarnation. But then at the incarnation, Jesus becoming clear about who he is, what God is doing in the world, what his plan of salvation is, and thus the character of God is made known to us as the New Testament is created, explaining the meaning of the Old Testament. And so that happens right away as Jesus leads these disciples on the Emmaus Road. He starts connecting these dots. These pictures in the Old Testament are all being fulfilled in the reality of who Jesus is. And then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, the first thing he preaches this sermon, he starts connecting the dots about how these Old Testament prophecies really are talking about Jesus. Uh, And then continues, the New Testament authors, the apostolic authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are continually given and, and are given the reality, the plain language of what all these things mean to us what all these things mean about about God. And so from our perspective, we look at the New Testament and we say, okay, what did the temple mean? All that meant God's incarnation where he came to dwell with people on earth. And then we as living stones are being built into the temple of God through our union with Christ. Now we are all, the church is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth. And we can say, well, what, are the, what were the animal sacrifices about? They were pictures of the perfect atonement of Jesus that was to come. What was the Exodus all about? The Exodus was a picture of the spiritual liberation of God's people from sin and death. What, was, what does born again mean, which totally confused Nicodemus? Born again means to be regenerate. God gives us a new heart, puts his spirit within us. We're in union with Jesus. What does living water and the bread of life mean? Again, the indwelling spirit. God pours out his spirit on his church and his spirit speaks to us through the word, the preaching of the word and through the sacrament. What is the vine? Vine, union with Christ. We, when you put all this together, the, the astonishing reality comes out that we know more about the reality of God than Abraham, than David, than Isaiah, than John the Baptist and all these Old Testament heroes that we look to, they would have killed, well, not really killed, but they would have been, they would have loved to have gotten their hands on a copy of the New Testament and to, and to have read about the beauty and the astonishing reality of the fulfillment of all of these things in Jesus. And we have it. We've got eight of them at home. Eight of them. And so therefore, what that means is that the New Testament is the plain explanation 
of the character of the Father, how He loves us, and His actions in the world, who He is and what He's done. Now, in contrast to that Babylon Bee headline, there was a, a video not long ago of, uh, of a village. Uh, I can't remember where the village was. It was a village where they had, they had translated the New Testament into this, the native tongue of this village, and they filmed the arrival of the Bible to these people. Where they had a, a little plane come in, lands on this dirt runway, and that the whole tribe just begins to lose their minds, jumping up and down, singing, dancing. And then you see they pull the boxes out of the plane, and people rip the boxes open and grab their copy of the Bible, hold it up, just praising God at the top of their lungs, holding it into their chest and weeping and crying over the fact that they now possess a copy of God's word, the words from heaven in their own language that they can read and study and spend time with and meditate and be immersed in the reality and the beauty of God. Man, we could learn from that, couldn't we? Now, not to shame us with that story, but man, could we learn from them? Could we learn from them how beautiful it is that we have the completed Bible, and yet how much time do we spend in it? How much time do we treat it? Do we treat it like it is? Do we treat it for what it is? You know? And I get it. it the discipline of, of meditating in the Word is difficult. We're up against all kinds of challenges in our, in our culture, too, not the least of which is... Uh, the information age and the internet and screens that provide this rapid fire, adrenaline rush, information addiction, and we're, we're, being, we're reprogramming our minds. Science says we're reprogramming our minds to, to need a constant influx of information that's not deep, that's not profound, that just continually hits us so that we get the, the rush of newness and what, what the price of that is that we lose and we are losing the ability to marinate and meditate in information. I was, as I was thinking about this today, I was wondering, do we, in our Bible-saturated culture, in our screen-saturated culture, I wonder if sometimes those things haven't come together to where we are constantly pre- pre- presented this never-ending stream of new tidbits of Bible information, we become addicted to the new information rather than actually having time to stop and seep and meditate in God's Word. Do I do that? Yes. (laughs) One of my favorite psalms, probably my favorite psalm, is Psalm 27, and it's because of this, this one verse that David says. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Oh Lord, I pray that You would help us 
to slow down a little bit and to disengage from the fury and flurry of the world just enough so that we might spend time every day meditating on your beauty through the word that you have given us. So point one, God continues to reveal himself to us through Jesus in the Bible. And point two, we can have intimate communion with him through prayer. Look at verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now what's the, what's the question that comes to mind when we read that? Question. The question is, how does that fit in with our understanding of Jesus being our, the mediator for our prayers? A lot of people, a lot of commentators bring this up, the big question, what, is this, what does this mean for that? Does this mean, does this must, maybe this is talking about, uh, about the new age, the new heavens and the earth, when we will be in the beatific vision and we will have some different kind of direct access to the Father where we don't need the mediation of Christ anymore? Is that what that means? Uh, Or does it mean something else? You know, Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. We're taught to pray to the Father through Jesus. So how is it that Jesus isn't asking the Father on our behalf? Well, the answer, answer is really pretty simple. The answer is that, is that Jesus is our mediator, not our relay handoff. Now, I think mediator, sometimes I think like that. I think that I pray and somehow my, my prayer floats up through the ether and Jesus catches it and then turns to God who's somewhere out there and brings it to God and then God will answer the prayer and Jesus will bring it back and pass it off to me. You know, like the relay run. Relay. Hand off to Jesus. Jesus takes it to the Father. Father answers, brings it back. I had a one friend who early, early Christianity, actually before Christianity, was super discouraged about prayer because he felt that prayer was like, like a radio signal and his signal he had this weak little transmitter that was just barely pumping out any signal at all and somehow God was on the other end of the universe and he wondered if God was really able to pick up on that weak signal. Same kind of relay idea. But Jesus isn't our relay handoff. Jesus is our mediator. Mediator, what does a mediator do in a counseling situation? A mediator brings reconciliation between two parties. Everybody's present. The parties can speak to each other, but the mediator is there to bring reconciliation, to bring people together. I used to have a t-shirt that said, it had a picture of the cross, and it said, you can't eliminate the middleman. It was cute, but it was wrong. Because a middleman, what does a middleman do? A middleman is a go-between, between two parties. But Jesus is our mediator Jesus brings us together. Jesus has brought us together with God. He hasn't brought us to the waiting room. He hasn't brought us to the relay race. He has brought us and opened the doors 
to the throne room and he's ushered us in. And so what that means, what Jesus is talking about, is that he brings us into the very presence of God. Now, does that, what does that do to your heart? Does that make you excited? Does it make you think, that's amazing? When you think about it, does it bring a little bit of fear? Maybe all three. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been invited to the presidential inaugural ball. But it turns out it's one of those weird dreams and as you get out of the limousine, you find that you're dressed in your smelly gym clothes. I mean, the really smelly ones, the ones that have been in the bottom of your gym bag for three weeks that are kind of musty and they're starting to usher you in to the inaugural ball where you'll be in front in the presence of, of the President of the United States. Would you go? Why not? <laughs> Why wouldn't you go in? You have an invitation. Mm. That calls to mind that the little bit of that little nagging fear about this, that there's that subtle voice that says, you can't go in. You're smelly. You're wearing smelly gym clothes. You're not good enough. You can't go in there. Same with the Cinderella story, right? She can't go into the ball because she's dressed in this filthy gown, even though she has an invitation to go, until the fairy godmother dresses her in this splendid gown. And in this, there is a reflection of the reality of how it is that we as sinners can approach God this week. I think that the this week is super appropriate to put on it because when we think of the abstract, we think, yes, I can approach God. But when you think about it in a bad week or you think about it in a week when you're struggling, there's that voice, you're not doing good this week. Hey man, you haven't prayed for two days. You can't go pray to God now. You're five months behind on your Bible reading plan. You need to catch up before God will listen to you, sinner. Listen to this. This is from Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That word put on literally means to put on a garment, a garment that has been put on us, literally to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We are not wearing our smelly gym clothes. We're we're wearing the splendid, righteous, perfectly righteous, holy garment that is Jesus. He has surrounded us with his righteousness and given us His perfect righteousness is a gift. And so because of that, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, heirs according to the promise. 
What that last part means is it doesn't matter what you were. It doesn't matter what you were. All those earthly categories, the sinful nature of our own hearts, what matters is who you've become, who we have become in Jesus. And God's word says that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and now we are able to enter into the ball not self-conscious about our smelly gym clothes, but realizing we've been dressed in the robes of Jesus. And not only that, but we are an heir. By being adopted as sons and daughters, we are heirs and able to walk into the ball, able to walk into the presence of God in that reality. How hard is that for us to remember? It is so hard for us to remember that because of the subtle voice, because of our own doubts, because of the accusing voice of the devil. But the reality is that the practical application of the finished work of Jesus means this, that it isn't just someday that we'll be ushered into the presence of the Father, although... In the new age, when we are in the beatific vision, that will be a reality beyond our ability to comprehend now. But still, even now, now, today, because of Jesus, we have been ushered into God's presence and we are invited into this intimate, ongoing communion with him to make all of our requests known, to come to him for strength, to pray to pray for those things that are necessary and needful in this evil age, that we would be empowered to remember that God is our Father, that we would be empowered to remember that our Father is the creator of the universe, to remember that we, and to ask that we have power to make God's name holy and to, to glorify it throughout the earth, to pray that his kingdom would come, to pray that we would be able to move with his will like water, even as the angels do in heaven. And when we come into God's presence and we do that, he sees us because of Jesus in the same splendor and holiness and beauty that he sees his son So summarizing, point one and point two. Since God continues to reveal himself to us through Jesus in the Bible, two, we can have intimate communion with him in prayer. Three, as we rest in his unshakable covenant love. Look at verse 27, 28. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me And I believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In the first first chapter of Jesus' storybook Bible, talks about how when the Satan infiltrated the garden. He came in with the lie that was poison that entered into everyone's hearts. And, and it says, 
and the lie, the big lie was, does God really love me? I mean, we can think about all those things, but that question always pops up. Does God really love me? And it's in the, in the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Satan is tempting Eve, and she says, does God really love me? Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. And that poison then transferred through the hearts of all mankind to where we wonder the same thing today. Does God love me? Or worse, God doesn't love you. <laughs> Just straight up, how could he? How could God love you? Well, Jesus ends this little section by reassuring us that that is a lie, that it's poison, that it's not true, and that he has, in fact, moved heaven and earth to win his people back to himself. Listen, listen to this again. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And think of all the things that Jesus might have said there behind God's love for us. If that was a fill-in-the-blank question on a test, what would you fill in? God loves me because. What would be tempted? I mean, I get it. We're Presbyterians. We know the right answer. God loves me because of the completed sacrificial work of Christ on my behalf. But on a bad week, think about it then. Think about it. On, this is not Sunday. It's Wednesday morning. It's Wednesday morning, and you've just been tempted. Things are not going well. And you think to yourself, just, does God love me? All the things that pop into our mind at first, you know, we think, well, Bible reading plan? No. Quiet time? No. Naya. Yelled at my wife, no. All the things that we tend to put in that blank as a basis for God's love for us. Practically, our systematic theology says one thing. Our practical theology often says something very different. God loves me when I'm doing good. God doesn't love me, or God is at least disappointed in me, or I am in the penalty box if I'm not doing this laundry list check off of things, right? But Jesus says two things here. He says, he says that because we love Jesus, this is, this is heart motive, okay? Heart motive, not behavior modification. Anybody can change the way they act, at least for a little bit of time, but this is saying that there's something different about our hearts. Our hearts have a genuine desire. We love Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the only way that ever happens is because God has given us a new heart. The old heart doesn't do this. The old heart just loves me. But the new heart has a genuine and real love for Jesus. Second, well, what this means, it might, you know, somebody might say, okay, well, love for Jesus, that, that means obeying his commands. Jesus just said that in chapter 14. Okay, true. There's a sense where 
that will produce the real genuine new heart uh, does uh, want to do the things that, that God wants. But what this means is that that is a product. It's a natural consequence. It's something that happens because of the love of Jesus in our hearts. And so this is not saying it, it precludes the possibility of God loving us for our works because works are not the focus here. It's not the means by which God loves us. They may be the product of that loving heart that God has given us. Two, because we have believed in Jesus. And to believe means, in the Bible, to trust in God's finished work, to trust that everything that we just talked about in the last point is really true. Because, and, and, and Paul says in Ephesians, how do we have that belief? How do we have trust? How do we have faith? That it itself is a gift of God given to us. We believe that Jesus has come forth from God and that means that we believe in this divine agency of his work, that it is God who has come to us through Christ to bring himself and his salvation to us. And now, here the, the, here's where the end, <laughs> the end of the rope for us, the end of the ploy to somehow take some credit. We get to the end and we say, but what if, but what if we don't love God enough? What if I don't believe in God enough? And that's why I think Jesus says verse 28, which is, it's not anything we haven't heard before, but altogether it is an astonishingly beautiful, comprehensive picture of the divine mission. From beginning to end, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world And now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. It's just like a picture of the whole cosmic sweep of the divine plan from beginning to end. I love that the term sweep for this because it really kind of characterizes this picture of the divine sweeping, coming out of eternity into the world, sweeping up his people in his covenant love and faithfulness and returning them back to the Father with his people. This is, this is really a summary of what theologians call the covenant of redemption, where before time in eternity, the parties of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, promised, made a covenant with each other to do this work of salvation, to come into the world, that Jesus would come and be the covenant keeper. He would obey the law on behalf of God's people he would suffer the penalty for their sins and then God would reward him by giving him a people to worship and the Holy Spirit would then apply that salvation to his people's hearts in and through time. And so this is a picture. At the end, Jesus like says this massive statement that talks about God's hand sweeping into creation and collecting us and bringing us home. It helps us to remember that we, we love Jesus because Jesus has loved us first. And it helps us to remember that we have a heart that loves Jesus because God has given us a new heart. 
And it helps us to remember that we believe in Jesus because God has given us faith. And we can rest in that. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. Lord, we thank you that you continue to reassure us of your steadfast covenant love for us. We thank you that you continue to reassure us through your word over and over again that you have saved us, that it is not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. That Because Jesus is righteous and perfect, We are saved because of what he has done, Lord. We are so tempted to forget this. We are so tempted on a practical, everyday, minute-by-minute basis to just forget this and to not approach you in the prayer, to not take advantage of the privileges that you have given us through Jesus, to not meditate in your word, to not come to you in prayer because that's subtle, lying voice that tries to tell us that we can't because you don't love us, because we haven't done good enough. So Lord, we thank you that your word continues to repeat to us and continues to reassure us every week that you do love us, that you loved us before the foundation of the world, and that you brought that love to us in Jesus and that we are able to see our pardon in his wounds, and that we know because of your faithfulness to us that you will hold us and you will bring us home. So help us, Lord, to rest in that as we worship you, as we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.